Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Fun Factory. Written and read by Chris England. Chapter 48. The Lone Star. A week later, the Santa Fe Sunset Flyer neared Los Angeles, and I sat in unaccustomed comfort in a Pullman carriage. It was certainly an improvement on the Carno boxcar in which I'd covered so many miles with its tourist-class basket-weave seating, and the other actual boxcars I'd ridden more recently as a free-loading bum. I leaned back in the plushly upholstered seating, gazed out at the arid miles of desert flashing by the window, and contemplated the task before me. I'd persuaded John that I couldn't just turn up on Chaplin's doorstep expecting a hearty welcome, not with all the history between us. I needed a plausible cover story. First of all, I needed to appear affluent and successful. If I gave Charlie the remotest impression that I wanted to touch him for money, I had no doubt at all that I would get the bum's rush. So I was wearing a smart new suit, bought for me by the United States government, and my belongings were housed in a brand new suitcase. Then I needed a reason to call, over and above the notion that we were two old friends getting together to catch up and reminisce about the old days. It might turn into that scenario if I played my cards right, but it wouldn't wash without a plausible agenda. We decided, John and I, that the best deceptions contained a large grain of truth. So I was to be a former four-minute man who'd been promoted to work on the Liberty Bond Drive full-time, becoming in effect a producer, recruiting the great and good to speak to large crowds and lend the weight of their fame to the cause. I figured that would get me in, at least, and after that, I'd have to play it by ear. One aspect of my new role I was particularly happy about anyway, Arthur Dando was back, and Arthur Smith finally consigned to the trash can. I'd been a little anxious as the train made its way across Kansas, close to Dodge, but John had given me a letter which nestled in my inside pocket, explaining that I was no longer being sought by the forces of law and order, and a card with his office's details on it in case any overzealous lawman needed to wire for confirmation. I couldn't help wondering what Tilly would have made of my current mission. When I'd proposed, oh so long ago now it seemed, and given her the ring with the Mr Punch head on it, She'd made it clear that I would need to put my fixation with Charlie Chaplin behind me before she would commit to spending the rest of her life with me. And what was I doing now? Heading clear across a continent in search of revenge, that's what. Chaplin had gone out of his way to do me down on so many occasions now. From paying one of Sid's sailor friends to heckle me, to having my leg broken, to moving in on my girl, and most recently to trying to get me hanged and destroying the Jacksonville film industry just in case I should be having too good a time. Oh yeah. I still owed him one. A big one. Once in Los Angeles, I checked into a high-class hotel, the best I could find, on the government's dime, and then the next morning I made my way over to the studios where Charlie made his films. The Lone Star Studios, they were called, and they were located in a part of the city known as Colgrave. I presented myself at the gatehouse, where two burly gatekeepers were in attendance, and I thought I cut an imposing figure in my dapper new threads, freshly shaved and businesslike. 
"'Good morning, my man,' I said to the closer of the two attendants. "'Would you be so kind as to let Mr Chaplin know that Mr Arthur Dando is here to see him? "'I am an old friend of his from the British Music Hall days.' I had barely finished the sentence when two of them grabbed me, one at each elbow, and flung me bodily back out into the street. Once I'd got over my surprise and dusted myself down, I realised that they couldn't possibly be primed to recognise my name. It must have been the reference to British Music Hall days that had prompted the knee-jerkers.' "'I see,' I said to myself. "'It's like that, is it?' I marched back inside and thrust my identity card in the first man's face. In point of fact, it was the card identifying me as a four-minute man, but I didn't let him see it long enough to focus properly on it. "'Listen to me,' I said, in a much less genial tone. "'I am here on important government business, and I demand you show me to Mr Chaplin at once.' This tactic rather depended on the man jumping to it quick-smart, but instead he gave me a long, slow look up and down, and then drawled to his burly mate, "'Call for the studio manager, will you, Dave?' Whereupon the second chap lumbered off into a side room. "'That's more like it,' I said. While I was waiting, it suddenly occurred to me that it would likely be Sid Chaplin who answered that particular summons, and I was just cursing my stupidity when the door opened and a stocky fellow in shirt sleeves stepped in and gaped at me. I, for my part, gaped back. "'Arthur Dando, it is you. I thought this guy must have got the name wrong.' "'Alf Reeves!' I cried, for it was indeed my old friend and company manager from the Carno Tours, and we embraced one another warmly with much backslapping. "'What on earth are you doing here?' "'Working for Charlie,' he said. "'Beats touring for Fred Carno, I'll tell you that. Last year I did a Mummingbirds tour that lasted nine months, and I don't think I felt my toes in all that time. But here the sun shines all day long.' "'Good for you,' I said. "'How's Amy?' "'Well, well,' he smiled. "'I didn't want her to risk the crossing, "'but she'll join me sooner or later. "'And Tilly?' "'She's well, too, as far as I know,' I said. "'But when the war started, she was over there, "'and I was over here, and, well,' "'I shrugged, not wanting to go into it any further. "'I know,' Alf said. "'It took me weeks to persuade them to give me the proper visas, "'and then I didn't sleep a wink the whole way over "'thinking I heard U-boat engines. "'Anyway, come in, come in.' Alf led me through the gatehouse and out into the open studio. "'The largest stage currently working,' he said, indicating with a sweep of his arm the hive of activity on the lot. Stagehands were carting large flats this way and that. There was a cacophony of hammering and sawing, and what looked like the main hallway of a large house was being constructed in the open air beneath an array of white linen sheets intended to diffuse the bright Californian sunshine. "'Look at you, Alf,' I said. "'In the flickers.' "'I had to leave the fun factory,' Alf said. "'The governor, he's... he's not the same.' "'I can imagine,' I said, thinking of poor Freddy. "'Have you seen anyone else from the old days?' "'Well, I suppose the last was Billy Ritchie.' "'Ah, how's that gabby rogue?' "'Dead,' I said. "'Oh, my God!' Alf gasped. "'I didn't hear. France?' "'Kicked to death by an ostrich,' I said gloomily. "'Good gracious!' Alf gasped. "'So the Germans are using ostriches now?' "'No, no, this was in Florida,' I explained. "'An accident. Terrible thing.' Alf shuddered. "'Well, there are a couple of old Carnoites here with us,' he said. "'There's Sydney, of course, and Albert Austin.' "'Ha!' I said. "'He always did seem to think the sun shone out of Charlie's behind.' "'And his faith has been rewarded,' Alf said dryly. "'Oh, and Eric Campbell, too. Did you know him?' "'I remember the name,' I said, but I never met him.' "'So what brings you here?' "'Looking for work in the pictures, is it?' "'I wavered before dissembling to my old friend. "'No,' I said after a moment. "'I'm here on government business, as it happens.' "'Oh?' 
Alf said, and was about to spin him the yarn about the Liberty Bond drive when suddenly the cry went up from all parts. He's here! The banging stopped, tools were flung aside, and hands came running from all directions. Alf gave a long-suffering sigh. Oh, he said, this nonsense. All the stage crew and electricians were lining up across the yard and standing to attention. From the various offices and bungalows on the lot, office staff were emerging and hustling over to join the lines, straightening their hair and buttoning up their jackets. Actors in costume emerged from the cabins on the far side, some pulling scraps of tissue from their collars, one portly man caught midway through a shave. "'Hello, Dando,' said a lean, lugubrious fellow with curly hair, as he galloped past me to stand dutifully to attention with everyone else. "'Austin,' I saluted. "'Come on,' Alf said, and strolled to the very end of the line where I joined him. The gate swung open, and a sleek black sports car, polished within an inch of its life, oozed into the lot. It drew to a halt in front of the assembled company, and I could see that the driver was a Japanese chap in some rather fancy livery. As soon as the motorcar stopped, a tall, gangly fellow stepped from the front door and scuttled round to open the back door on the other side for the distinguished passenger. Charlie, for it was he, emerged in a black coat with an astrakhan collar, bareheaded, and strode across the studio yard, affecting not to even notice the line of employees waiting there, disappearing with a tall fellow at his heels into the office block, while his Japanese chauffeur drove the car away to park it out of the sunshine. Only when the boss was out of sight did everyone relax, and the lines broke as they all hustled back to their various jobs. It was an astounding spectacle. "'Don't ask,' Alf said. "'Well, I suppose I should go and speak to him before he gets busy filming.' Oh, I shouldn't think we'll be filming much today, if anything at all. Oh? Yes, he's supposed to be delivering a film a month, but this one's been going for two and looks like going for two more. Some days we all just hang around while he thinks about the story, and then we all go home again. What's up? Run out of Carno sketches to cannibalise? Ha! Alf said. You saw the rink. What? Fred Carno's skating, you mean? Alf laughed. Or London suburbia, sorry, I mean Easy Street. So... "'Shall I?' I nodded towards the office, but Alf shook his head. "'Leave him for an hour or two till he gets bored with his own company and staring at the four walls. "'Come on, I'll make you a cup of tea. We can have a proper catch-up.' It was midday before Alf would consent to let me go, and even then he insisted on coming with me to Charlie's inner sanctum. The office block was fairly rudimentary, with the inside walls painted pale green, giving it the look of some kind of field hospital.' No wonder Charlie was struggling to think of anything funny, I thought. We were greeted by the tall, thin factotum I'd seen earlier. "'Can I help you, gentlemen?' "'Morning, Tom,' Alf said cheerily. "'I've brought a visitor.' "'I'm sorry, Mr. Reeves, but I'm afraid Mr. Chaplin has expressly asked not to be disturbed.' "'Oh, he won't mind me,' Alf said, and strode up to the office door, knocking it and opening it in the same movement. "'I thought I said—' came a familiar voice from inside, but Alf's bonhomie rode right over the top of Charlie's irritation. "'Hey, Charlie!' he sang out. "'Look who's here! You'll never guess!' I was hanging back, but Alf grabbed me by the arm and thrust me forwards into Charlie's room, which was bare, just a wooden table and a couple of chairs, one piece of blank paper and a pencil. Charlie was halfway up out of the chair when I walked in, and when he saw me his eyes widened, showing those big violet irises, and he slumped back onto the seat. "'Hello, Charlie,' I said. "'Well, well, well,' Charlie said quietly. "'Well, well, 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 well.' "'It's been a while,' I said. "'It has, it has, hasn't it?' 
Alf Reeves clapped his hands together. I'll leave you two to chat, he said, turning to the door. No, Charlie almost shouted. No, Alf, stay, stay, please. It was clear that Chaplin thought I might have come to do him harm. After all, since we had last met face to face, he'd discovered that I'd shot a Chaplin impersonator, and he'd tried to shot me to the Bureau of Investigation. I strolled over to the other chair and sat down, thinking it might relax him, and he did seem a little easier after a moment, and let go of the pencil, which I suddenly saw he'd been holding like a knife. So, I said, and Charlie bared his teeth in a mirthless smile. "'I'm afraid we don't have anything for you,' he said. "'All the parts in our current film are spoken for. "'We've shot the opening scenes already over at Sierra Madre, "'so I can't think of making a change.' "'I'm not looking for work,' I said. "'You're not? "'In point of fact, I've left the entertainment industry altogether.' "'What? "'No, it can't be.' "'Charlie was shocked, I could see that, "'but there was no mistaking an undercurrent of pure glee at this news. "'It twinkled in those strange violet eyes.' I felt a sudden burst of enthusiasm for getting back into the game somehow, but for the moment I had another task. "'I assure you,' I said. "'What then? What are you up to these days?' "'I am working for the government,' I said. "'It's my task to put together some large-scale public appearances for our best-loved cinema personalities as part of the Liberty Bond drive. It's all part of the war effort, you know. Comedy's loss is the war effort's gain. Well, that's gracious, thank you. Chaplin preened, and I could almost see him relaxing by the second. "'Arthur is hoping that you could make some appearances across the country,' Alf put in helpfully, "'and perhaps encourage some others to join in as well. Douglas Fairbanks, maybe. Mary Pickford?' Charlie's mood was changing. He understood now that I wanted something from him, and that he held the cards. A sorrowful half-smile crept across his features, and it didn't strike me as altogether sincere. "'I'm sorry,' Charlie said. "'I simply cannot spare the time.' I'm bound to make this last film for Mutual, and then I'm straight into my new contract with First National. For a million dollars, I said. Is that what they're saying? You'd have to ask Sid. Of course, I'll buy some bonds if you have them on you. No, no, I said, I'm not actually selling them myself. And then we're busy building the new studios on Sunset, right in amongst the orange groves there. It's a lovely spot. It'll be far more conducive than this. I see. I'll tell you what, Charlie said and the cornered animal had completely disappeared now. He was transforming before my eyes into the very soul of generosity. "'Where are you staying?' "'Oh, the government have run to a hotel,' I said, "'but only for a couple of days. "'Then they'll be expecting me back in New York.' "'Come and stay with us for a few days. "'There are bungalows, aren't there? "'Right here on the lot, eh, Alf?' Alf Reeves nodded, beaming. "'Take a break in California. "'Get some sun.' You can tell your bosses that you gave it everything to persuade me, but I just couldn't fit it in. Come along. I won't take no for an answer. What was going on? Was he prompted by guilt for all that he had done to me over the years? Now that I was no longer a rival, did he need me to like him? Was he playing a new part now, the genial host, acting like he did most of the time? Did anyone know the real Charlie Chaplin? Maybe only I did, I thought. I'll give it some thought, I said, playing hard to get. This, however, was as promising an opportunity as I could have hoped for. "'Come to the commissary. We shall have some lunch. I think today there's sausages and bacon. Cooked on a gas jet by a chef standing on a chair, I hope.' "'Ha-ha, yes!' Chaplin cried, with an assistant wafting the smoke out of the window and another masking the sizzling noises from the landlady by playing on the violin. "'That's what we used to do when we first came to New York,' I explained to Alf, with Stan. He was the cook, and Freddy, too. Charlie snapped his fingers as an idea struck. And this very afternoon, we are all going to see a private screening at the Hippodrome. You must come along. I think you might enjoy it. A comedy? Oh, yes. 
Who is the star? Yourself? Oh, no, 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 no. I am merely an interested spectator. Say you'll come. I should be delighted. Excellent, Charlie said, with a smug smirk, as though he knew something I didn't know. Well, I knew something he didn't know. And I was in. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Chapter 49. Nuts in May. That afternoon, a little party assembled in the Lone Star Studios' yard. Charlie's sports car, with its Japanese chauffeur, rolled around in front of the office building, followed by another, slightly more practical, passenger vehicle. Charlie was taking care of some business inside, and as I waited with Alf, he introduced me to a man-mountain, six foot five if he was an inch, and almost as broad, who was engaged in some lovey-dovey smooching with a tiny, pretty girl who was almost entirely hidden under the giant's great arm. Eric! Eric Campbell! This is Arthur Dando, another refugee from the Fun Factory. Ah, yes, Campbell said, stroking his chin. You know, I saw that shootout of yours. You did? I said, my heart racing suddenly as I wondered how I could have missed such an imposing figure on the streets of Dodge. Yes, yes, at the Oxford, back in '09, wasn't it? when the governor couldn't choose between you and Charlie and made you both play the goalkeeper on the same day, and that footballer broke your leg. The big man winced and then shook my hand. It's an honour, sir. For me too, I said. Meet Pearl, my wife. I took the girl's hand as both she and Campbell simpered at one another with the private amusement newlyweds can get from using the words husband and wife for the first few times. He married her last week, Alf murmured in a quiet aside as the Campbells moved off. They'd only known each other five days. How romantic. Hmm, Alf snorted. Yes, unless you know that she was married twice before, to the candy heir Charles Aliski, divorced him, and the millionaire Theodore Amreiter, divorced him too. Her sister Mabel, meanwhile, was just married to William Corey, who's three times her age and owns US Steel. Oh, I said, beginning to see the picture. I give it six weeks. Sid Chaplin stalked over to join us, and I decided to greet him cheerily, despite the years of resentments I'd stored up against the black-hearted villain. "'What ho, Sid?' I said, hand outstretched as he approached, affecting the posh-twit greeting that was the big in-joke during Arcano time. "'Dando,' Sid growled, not taking my hand and not joining in the joke. "'I heard you were here. You're not going to cause any trouble, are you?' "'Trouble?' I said. "'Me?' "'Arthur's working for the government now,' Alf said. "'The war effort, you know.' "'Hmm,' Sid said, with a suspicious narrowing of his eyes, "'and then he moved off to speak to the chauffeur. 
Charlie emerged then, full of bonhomie now, with an attractive young girl on his arm. She had light brown hair and a sweet, innocent face, and I knew I'd seen her somewhere before. I still hadn't quite placed her, though, when the pair joined us. "'We've met, haven't we?' I said to the girl. "'Oh, I,' she said, and then I had it. "'Yes, at the studio in Chicago. "'She was the very pretty girl who I'd thought better suited to the movies "'than any of the wannabes in her waiting room. "'S&A?' Charlie said, turning to his companion. "'Why, that's right. That's where I met you, isn't it? "'Arthur Nando, Miss Edna Pavayance. "'He gave us the benefit of those brilliant white teeth, and then said, "'Ride with us.' I squeezed in the back of the sports car after Charlie, with Edna squashed in the middle, and we rolled out of the yard and onto the road. "'I came at the invitation of Ben Turpin,' I said to Edna. "'Oh, yes, I remember. Fancy seeing you again,' she said. "'I recall you visited with that lovely Mrs Hurley, didn't you?' Charlie said. "'Yes,' I said. "'We thought it would be a lark to be in one of your films. "'And her husband. What happened to him?' I knew fine well that he was well aware of Edgar's fate, since I was sure he had identified me to the Bureau of Investigation, but I was desperately anxious to avoid a confrontation, since I had a job to do, and what's more had made such a good start at infiltrating Charlie's life. Oh, a terrible thing. I was there. There was a gunfight, a publicity stunt, and the gun was supposed to have blanks in it, but in the event, the ammunition was live. Oh, how awful, Edna gasped. I do vaguely recollect something now, Charlie mused. Well, he was dressed as you, and the papers declared you dead, so news might have reached you. Chaplin waved a hand. Oh, I have been declared dead eight or nine times now. Drowned trying to rescue a child, killed when a stunt went wrong, automobile crashes, at least two suicides, killed by a jealous husband, his mangled corpse, that sort of thing. I barely even glance at them nowadays. Did you know, he said, nine out of ten men who went to a costume party in the last year went as me? Ha <laughs> ha! I guess the likelihood of some of them having an accident must be quite high, I said. Exactly, Charlie laughed. Oh, don't even joke about it, Edna said. Charlie took her hand and patted it. Isn't she adorable? We really are inseparable, aren't we? When we arrived at the Hippodrome on Main Street, I was surprised to discover it was actually a vaudeville theatre rather than a cinema. The owner, a gent by the name of Adolphus Ramish, wants to get into pictures, Charlie explained as we walked in. That's why he's invited all these luminaries along. The lobby was crowded with people waiting, and a board placed upon an easel by the staircase announced the picture we were to be admitted to see. It read, Stan Laurel in Nuts in May. There's Carl Lemley from Universal, Charlie said, and made a beeline for a diminutive chap with his thumbs stuck in the waistcoat of an expensive-looking suit. Poor Edna Paviance was suddenly left standing by herself in the middle of the room, not looking best pleased, tutting away to herself. Can I get you a drink, I said. Rather chivalrously, I thought, but she didn't reply or even look in my direction. After a moment's awkwardness, I decided to leave her to her quiet seething. Besides, I'd seen someone else I'd much rather speak to, lurking shyly in a corner, a rather brassy woman clinging to his arm. "'Stan!' I cried out, striding over towards my friend. "'Arthur! My goodness! How marvellous! Stan said, and we embraced. "'I had no idea you'd be here. This is May. I'm Mrs. Stan Laurel.' May said, hitting the word Mrs. pretty hard, as though I really ought to know who this Laurel fellow was, and I thought I caught a strong hint of an Antipodean twang. "'Stan Laurel? The star of the picture, you mean?' I said, raising an eyebrow at Stan and a silent plea for assistance. "'Is he here?' "'Right here,' Stan said. "'In fact, it's me.' And as if to underline this extraordinary revelation, May hooked her arm possessively in his once again. "'Well,' I said, 
Congratulations, old chap. I'm delighted to make your acquaintance, Mrs. Laurel, and indeed yours, Mr. Laurel. You see, Stan said, a little sheepishly, I thought, we couldn't be Mr. and Mrs. Jefferson officially because May is already married. Technically, May put in, it's a marriage in name only. The bum lives in Australia and doesn't care whether I live or die. But because I change my name, then we can be billed as Mr. and Mrs., do you see? Oh, so it's just a stage name? Yes, Stan said, at the very moment as May said, no. I blinked. Besides, Stan went on, it's for luck. Stan Jefferson has thirteen letters, so... He shrugged. Where did you come up with Laurel, for heaven's sake? Oh, that was mine, May said. Wasn't it, Stanley? Yes, dear, Stan said quietly. I saw a picture of a Roman general called Scipio Africanus, you see, in a book, and he was wearing a laurel crown as a symbol of triumph, and so I said, That's it! Stan and May Laurel. Didn't I, Stan? You did, my friend confirmed. So, you've made a movie, I said. Exciting. Yes, we're appearing here in vaudeville, and the owner wanted to make a film, so... He shrugged. Appearing in a burglar sketch, by any chance? There may be a burglar involved, he said with a sly grin. Are Alice and Baldy with you? No, May put in. They were holding us back, weren't they, Stan? So we dropped them, a year ago now. I see. Stan gave me a sheepish grin, and just then the doors opened and the assembled throng began to shift into the auditorium, so we followed. You know, I said, Stanley Laurel has thirteen letters in it. Shh! Stan hissed. Nuts in May, Stan's film debut, was an amiable piece of knockabout stuff. He was an SKP from a lunatic asylum in a business suit and a Napoleon hat, who seemed to believe he was the Emperor himself. This leads to various misadventures. At one point he commandeers a steamroller and lays waste to all about him, and it was certainly a big hit with all present, judging by the laughter and the scowl on Chaplin's face as he watched with arms tightly folded about himself. I was pleased for Stan, but my one concern was that his pale blue eyes, so striking a feature in real life, seemed to disappear somehow on screen, so that he had two oval shapes of dark eyeliner unnervingly, almost spookily empty. I hoped that wasn't going to be a problem for him. Afterwards, in the lobby, I heard Carl Lemley, the universal bigwig, praising Stan's undoubted ease before the camera, which seemed to me to bode well. Charlie and Edna swept through the crowd, most of whom were buzzing with excitement after what they'd been treated to, and I followed, not wanting to miss out on my lift. Stan stood in their way, a friendly, hopeful grin on his long face. Charlie stopped and shook his hand solemnly. "'Come and see me,' he said, "'and we'll certainly do something.' I congratulated the beaming Stan quickly and made to follow Charlie and Edna out to the waiting motorcar. He grabbed my arm. "'You're here with Charlie,' he said." How on earth did that happen? It's complicated, I sighed. It was as well. I still had to make any kind of progress on discovering evidence that might help the mysterious John to bring Chaplin down, but what if he was about to help Stan launch a movie career? I had plenty to think about as we rode back to the Lone Star Studios. Charlie seemed preoccupied also, staring silently out of one window as I stared out of the opposite side, with Edna squashed between us, feeling neglected, judging by the periodical tuts. A few days later, I was installed in a bungalow on the Lone Star lot. It was fairly spartan, but comfortable enough. There was a bedstead and a bathroom, and I was pleased with it. For one thing, I could let John continue to pay for my hotel room expenses and pocket the cash. And for another, I was well-placed to have a snoop around after everyone had gone for the day. 
My best hope of finding something incriminating seemed to be in the office block, which so far had always been either occupied or locked up securely. Whilst I pondered what to do, I stood with Alf Reeves watching Chaplin work on a little sequence on the set of a large country house. Charlie and Edna were eating ice cream, and the little fellow was trying to engineer dropping the whole scoop down the front of his trousers, and then working it down his leg so that it reappeared by his foot. Charlie's range of facial expressions was comical enough, I had to admit that, but the ice cream was not behaving itself. Glory be, Alf muttered, finally he's getting on with something. Has there been some kind of problem? You could say that, Alf said in a low voice. Listen, I shouldn't really be talking about this, but Charlie's had a bit of a spat with Edna and it's knocked him off his stride. What happened? I said, always eager for details of Chaplin's unhappiness. Well, whenever Edna feels that Charlie's neglecting her, spending too much time with his work, maybe, or flirting with other ladies, she has this little, what you might call, feminine tactic. She'll pretend to faint. Everyone knows she's pretending, apart from Charlie. And then when she wakes, she asks for him, and he runs gallantly to her side. The other day, she fainted for real, and when she woke, before she knew where she was, she asked for Tom Megan. The actor? Alf nodded. "'Good-looking chap, but married, and all of ten years older than her. "'She said she'd just seen him in a dream, and that was all. "'But Charlie was dreadfully jealous. "'Of a dream?' <laughs> "'I'd laughed out loud, too loud as it turned out, "'because Charlie was striding over to us. "'See?' he was saying to the crew at large. "'Arthur thinks it's funny, don't you, Arthur?' Uh, "'Yes, very,' I said. "'So what can I do to make it work better? "'Come on, Arthur, help me out. "'What would Carno do?' Well, have you thought of not actually using ice cream? Not using? What about something like mashed potato? You could shape it into scoops and it wouldn't melt. It would keep its shape all the way down your leg, wouldn't it? Mashed potato, Charlie mused. After all, it doesn't matter what it tastes like, does it, as long as it looks right. If you think I'm eating mashed potato all afternoon, you've got another thing coming, Edna sang out, but Charlie ignored her. I was on a roll now, and I thought I knew what Babe and I would have done if this was a plump and runt. And supposing you were to be eating the ice cream on a balcony up there, say, after all it's a house party, isn't it? So then, look, the ice cream could slide down your leg, and then out onto the floor, then it could slip through the slats, and down someone's neck. The Duchess over there, say. And Eric could try and get it out with a spoon, and she could slap him. The, the whole thing would build and build. Charlie was lost in a world of his own momentarily, and the whole crew had stopped work and were watching, anxiously, almost holding their breath. I suddenly realised that it must be extremely unusual to see an outsider giving Charlie advice, and I wondered if I might have put my foot in it. Just, just a thought, I said. Charlie snapped his fingers and beckoned the carpenter over. Build me a balcony, up there, he said, and I want it to have slats on the floor with gaps in, understand? The carpenter trotted off to start work, and Edna swept past on her way to her dressing room. Oh, so we're doing his ideas then, she said sarcastically, but mine are wasting everybody's time. "'Edna!' Charlie wheedled, but she was gone. Behind Charlie's back, Alf rolled his eyes at me. To my great satisfaction, the suggestions I'd made played out very well. The mashed potato behaved itself much better than the ice cream had done, although Edna's face between takes suggested that it wasn't much fun to eat. And Marta Golden, as Edna's posh mother, really went to town on the sequence where the ice cream went down the back of her dress, with a whole catalogue of pop-eyed gurning that had the crew in a roar. Big Eric Campbell, too, with a forked black beard glued to his chops, had an absolute ball, and for once Chaplin had allowed his supporting artists to have the punchline to a gag. 
That evening, after sundown, I strolled the lot, keeping in the shadows, trying to work out how I could successfully ransack the offices without getting caught. John would be getting impatient, and if I came up empty he might throw me to the wolves anyway, out of spite. Suddenly a movement caught my eye over by the office block. Two shadowy figures scurried over to the main door and surreptitiously let themselves in. I watched, but no lights came on inside, and it looked like whoever it was didn't want to advertise their presence. What was this? I wondered. Were there more government spies on the case? Had John grown tired of waiting to hear from me and detailed someone else to break in? I slunk over to the office building, keeping in the shadows and out of the line of sight from the windows. The main door was unlocked, and I opened it very slowly, very carefully, peering inside as I did so. The reception area was dark and deserted, so I slipped inside and then stood absolutely still, listening. There was no noise at all at first, and I even began to think I might have been mistaken, but then a creak and a sigh came from one of the offices, and I tiptoed closer. There was someone in Chaplin's office, the sparsely furnished room I had first seen him trying to write in. Nothing to steal in there, I thought. All the interesting stuff would be in the offices down the corridor. I crept closer and closer, until I could peek in through the small crack where the door was not quite pulled to. An astonishing scene greeted my startled gaze, illuminated by the moonlight streaming in through the skylight. A young woman lay back on Chaplin's writing table, her dress pushed up around her waist, her pale thighs gleaming above her stocking tops, her head thrown back in ecstasy. A dark-haired man, tall, broad shoulders, loomed over her in silhouette, and his urgent thrusts were causing the table to squeak and creak alarmingly, as though it might not stand the strain of this nocturnal activity too much longer. The girl was Edna Pavayance, and the man I recognised from the film Puddenhead Wilson, in which he'd played the grown-up version of one of the swapped-at-birth babies. It was Thomas Megan, dark and dashing, so quite clearly Edna had been doing more than merely dreaming about him. And what was this about? On Chaplin's desk, in his inner sanctum. The girl was punishing him, punishing him for putting his work ahead of her. That's what it looked like. I watched, fascinated, for a moment or two, wondering what they would do if they actually reduced the table to matchwood. But then I started to feel awkward and turned away, which is when I saw the bunch of keys dangling from the keyhole. Surely these must be Charlie's keys, master keys for the whole building, that Edna had somehow borrowed for the evening in order to get her own back on him. It was the work of a moment to slide them noiselessly into my palm, and I scuttled off up the dark corridor. I had no way of knowing how long Megan could keep his end up, so to speak, and so I frantically fumbled for the right key for the first door, until I had a brainwave. I didn't need to hurry, did I? All I needed to do was unlock all the doors and return the keys. Then once Edna and her secret lover left, I could give the place a thorough going over at my leisure. When I slipped back to Charlie's room, the pyrotechnics were just reaching their climax. There was gasping and groaning and creaking and straining, and it didn't sound like there was going to be time for me to replace the key in the hole, so I placed the whole bunch gently on the floor, as though they had fallen out by themselves, and then found myself a corner at the far end of the building in which to lurk behind a small potted palm. I was there for a while. It seemed that the performance I'd stumbled across was merely the matinee, and I had to wait for the main evening event to reach its grand finale before the lovers sneaked out and left, locking me in. I searched, methodically then, through files of production expenses, budgets, payrolls, materials, invoices and receipts, but didn't hit upon anything remotely interesting until I went into Sid Chaplin's office. 
He took care of all Charlie's business these days, so here I found more personal items, documents, leases, correspondence, and finally, hallelujah, the very letter I was looking for. To be precise, it was a carbon copy of a letter, on headed notepaper, typed and addressed to the draft board. The writer certified and attested that Mr Charles Spencer Chaplin, currently resident at the Los Angeles Athletic Club, was at six stone eleven pounds, significantly below the stipulated minimum weight for a man of his height, which was five feet and four inches tall, and as such should be exempted from active service. It was signed Dr A. R. Binks, M.D., resident physician at the Casper Cone Hospital on Stevenson Avenue, East Los Angeles. At first I was disappointed. I sat back in Sid's chair and looked at this document. It was brief and to the point, and exactly what I was supposed to look for, but the hope was not simply that I would find it, but that I would be able to debunk it somehow. Six stone eleven pounds. Surely the man I had seen wolfing down sausages and bacon in the commissary couldn't be quite that frail, but I couldn't see how to possibly prove such a thing, short of tricking him into stepping onto a set of scales, and even then it would be my word against this Dr Binks. Then it struck me like a thunderbolt from a clear blue sky. Binks. Binks was the name we gave to the stock posh twit character in every Carno sketch in the repertoire. In skating, the posh twit was Binks, the sketch devised by Sid Chaplin and the role played by both brothers at one time or another. In A Night at the Club, Charlie had also been a Binks. And in The Wow Wows, the lame skit we first brought to the States in 1910, and which nearly derailed us before we'd even begun, the posh twit who seeks membership of the exclusive Gentleman's Club was called Binks, Archibald Binks. Then there was an article I'd read, not long before, in which Charlie described how he'd invented his million-dollar walk. He could have said he'd stolen it from me, of course, or from Billy Ritchie, or old Fred Kitchen, or George Roby. But no, he claimed he was mimicking an old character from his childhood in old London town. He always did like to make his legend as Dickensian as possible. A rheumatic old wheezer who occupied a local cab stand, holding the horses for a penny tip. And his name, the comedy name that Chaplin had given his self-mythologising invention, was Binks. Rummy Binks. Dr. A. R. Binks. Archibald Rummy Binks. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.